Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Get Better Wellness Radio Show. Today is August 25th, and I'm your host, Erin Chamerlick, holistic nutrition educator coming to you live from Chicago, Illinois. And on this show, we talk about the power of real food to improve your health and vitality. You can learn more about Get Better Wellness on my website, getbetterwellness.com. And we have a great show today. Uh, We are going to talk about a condition that is affecting countless women today. And joining me on this podcast, I have a very special guest, Dr. Michael Fox, OBGYN, reproductive endocrinologist and the medical director of the Jacksonville Center for Reproductive Medicine. So welcome, Dr. Fox. Thank you very much, Erin. We um, have a variety of folks that listen, and some of them have no idea what this condition is. Um, So what we're talking about today is polycystic ovarian syndrome, or PCOS, And I was hoping that you could um, maybe describe the condition for us. How would a woman um, recognize symptoms in herself uh, that might cause her to come visit a doctor like you? Okay, well, that's certainly a great question. Um, PCOS, the way I describe it to patients, is that it represents a hormone imbalance. Uh, The name implies cysts. And uh, the word cyst always invokes uh, fear in a lot of people, but it's really not a structural ovarian problem. It's a hormonal imbalance. And the ovary makes, uh, in the normal state, male and female hormones in a certain balance. And in PCOS, the ovary makes a little bit more male hormone, and that then disrupts the ovulation cycle and creates uh, cycle irregularity, infertility, and then the male hormones cause the other common symptoms, which would be facial hair growth, acne, oily skin, scalp hair loss, uh, and then often also associated with weight gain or obesity. So that's kind of the basic. uh, Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just... I was just going to comment that uh, when a woman has facial hair or it doesn't it's not just on the face is it it can be other places correct yeah i didn't mean to limit it to that but we see hair on the back sometimes the chest Um, typically uh, we'll see it in the lower abdominal area so any hair uh, certainly above the belly button or a thicker, uh, more triangular shape below the belly button would be indicative of a male hormonal pattern. So a lot of women might be finding themselves going for laser hair treatment, not realizing this is a hormone imbalance, as you said, or the male pattern baldness. Um, I, I think a lot of people might not even recognize what's going on here. Um are there other issues that um, they might recognize in terms of their blood sugar? Is that something they can feel or sense? Um, 
Well, I mean, I guess a general concept would be uh, to explain uh, how PCO sort of integrates into a broader health problem. Uh, Traditionally, we've isolated polycystic ovary in the gynecologic world, and it's been a sort of a female problem, and, and we thought of it as an ovarian disease or a female reproductive hormone problem. Today, we really see PCOS as more of a symptom of an underlying disease called insulin resistance. And insulin resistance causes type 2 diabetes, it causes hypertension, heart disease, stroke, cholesterol problems, obesity, and PCOS. So just to make that distinction, and that's where when when you ask a question about sugar problems, that's where that comes into play. So insulin resistance and in the younger patients, which is when we see PCO most commonly, uh, in their uh, association with diabetes, they're in what we would call the pre-diabetic phase of the diabetes gene expression. So if uh, most people that we see in that age group with type 2 diabetes, if they have that genetic predisposition, they actually experience low blood sugar, not high blood sugar. And they have something called reactive hypoglycemia. So they they, uh, eat carbohydrates and their insulin levels go really high and then they become hypoglycemic. So to answer your question, yes, people could notice that. And if they do get shaky, nauseated, they have headaches, they get really tired during the day, uh, those are all symptoms of hypoglycemia, uh, which would be a part of the syndrome in many cases. Okay, so it's um, everybody with PCOS has a problem with too much insulin. And... Um, and it's the insulin that causes the male hormones to be in excess. Is that true? That's uh, correct. In the late 90s, we uh, realized that insulin was a uh, uh, probably the largest stimulator of male hormone production in the ovary. There are other reproductive hormones that affect that, but it seems like insulin is the primary one. And then it seems like the symptoms that you described line up with um, the symptoms of metabolic syndrome, except for maybe the hormone issue. That would be the one thing that's different, right? So, you know, what what's happening in this country where, you know, we're having diseases that we never even heard of, you know, not too long ago. I think this was first identified probably 75 years ago, but I don't think most people have even heard of it um, up until maybe the last 10 years. Uh, that's correct. Uh, I, I, uh, to address your first point, uh, at least from our perspective in our practice, we clearly believe that polycystic ovary, insulin resistance, I call it the type 2 diabetes gene expression, whatever phase of that you might be in, and metabolic syndrome are all one and the same. 
Uh, I think in medicine, unfortunately, we're in our own little worlds. We're in the gynecology world, reproductive medicine world. The internal medicine people are in their research world. Cardiology is in their world. The medical endocrine people are in their world. And everybody's been studying this process from different angles, but it's starting to coalesce uh, sort of in the center around this insulin resistance idea. But PCOS, you're right, um, as a as a major female problem and hormonal problem, um, was very poorly treated, uh, very rarely recognized by most uh, uh, family physicians, uh, even OBGYNs, uh, and it's become popularized in the last five to ten years, whereas before it um, was very much in the background. Yeah, and what how what would you say you've seen in your practice? Um have you seen an increase? Um you know, you've been in practice um over 15, 16 years. What have you seen over the years in your practice? Uh I, th- I definitely uh I feel like there's been a dramatic increase which parallels the increase in obesity and diabetes and heart disease that we're seeing in you know in everything else and we're seeing um the severity of the process um uh, in a much higher degree than we used to see you know we would see maybe 1 or 2% of the patients would have really severe PCO and then we'd see a lot of people with mild PCO whereas today I mean most people are are uh, in a pretty severe category in terms of their metabolic disturbance. Wow, that's such a short time to have these changes. Um, what do you attribute this to, this um, you know, dramatic increase? You said that parallels increase of obesity and diabetes and heart disease. What are you seeing? What do you think this uh, root cause is? Well, uh, I would tell you we've been in the metabolic arena, uh, as I call it, uh, now for about seven or eight years. Uh, And after studying it very carefully, I would tell you there's no doubt in my mind, but it clearly has to do with the overall change in our nutritional composition over the last probably 30 years, but even more dramatic over the last 15 or so, um, as we've seen our children being more and more exposed to simple carbohydrates, um, we're just seeing a dramatic increase in all these problems in the teenage years and earlier 20s, so people are having more and more fertility issues, and that's why we're seeing them, you know, with PCO. And I think it's um, refreshing on your website, which is jcrm.org, that you talk about, um, you know, how you're having success um, taking infertile couples through different um, avenues that don't necessarily include IVF. Is that, um, you know, your first step is is to look at this area? Well, traditionally in uh, reproductive medicine, if 
if polycystic ovary and the ovulation disorder was was the primary problem for a couple, we would start with oral ovulation drugs. Clomid was the traditional medicine. Um, but uh, even with correction of ovulation in more than 90% of patients, uh, historically we would only see pregnancy in 40 or 50%, which was very distressing um, to us given the fact that we could make people ovulate, but they just weren't getting pregnant. So seven or eight years ago when we added the metabolic side, meaning changing their nutrition and trying to get their insulin levels down, uh, we've just seen an explosion in our pregnancy rate. So now probably 90% of people that we see that are uh, that have uh, anovulation due to polycystic ovary, we can achieve pregnancy with just basic fertility drugs uh, given the change in their metabolic state. That's got to be very exciting and rewarding for you to to be on this edge because I would imagine most of the medical community isn't following this nutritional approach. Um, what what do you see happening in um, you know at your meetings, your annual meetings, and things like that? Are they talking about nutrition for PCOS? Uh, well, not really. Uh, that that's been a very frustrating. Uh, Part of this whole process is watching the, uh, you know, sort of the national scene, both from a governmental standpoint, FDA, uh, medicine, and certainly in our subspecialty. Um, one of one of our my colleagues actually started the nutrition subgroup in the uh, American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Started it, I think, four years ago. Um, and so when we go to our meetings, as in many uh, industries and, and whatnot, uh, they have subgroups that break out. And even last year, that in in a room that typically would have um, 200 people in it, there were maybe 10 or 15. So mm-hmm. I would say to you that it's very unattended as a as an idea, uh, even on the national level in our specialty. And I I think, um, you know, when doctors aren't given nutrition education as part of medical school, maybe you just think there isn't any information in that breakout at the annual meeting and that you don't need to go. So how how did you get your eyes open to the nutritional aspects? Um, Well, uh, that's kind of an interesting question, too. We... uh, at, through the late 90s, um, again, in the uh, polycystic ovary research world, uh, it was discovered that insulin and insulin resistance played a big role in uh, PCO. Uh, so one day, just thinking about it, as we think about a lot of our problems, um, I said to myself, uh, well, if insulin's the problem, uh, then we need to cut out whatever causes insulin release and that's carbohydrates. And so, uh, which we all learn in physiology in med school. So I started doing a little research on it, and we started uh, our patients in that direction. Uh, And we've gradually evolved over the past seven or eight years 
from what we started with, which was South Beach diet, which didn't work very well with our patients, uh, to now where we are, where we're really trying to push patients down to almost zero carbohydrates. Um, but it was really just a kind of a uh, putting the physiology together. And so this is um, probably a big stretch for your patients when you start to talk about zero carbohydrates. Um, you know, is this just during the treatment phase or is this their diet going forward? Well, uh, you're absolutely right. It's a huge stretch. It's like uh, pulling the rug out from under them. Um our our approach to PCO, let's say if you come to us without uh, any desire for pregnancy, uh, we still uh, work very hard in the nutritional treatment uh, realm, and that is our primary treatment for polycystic ovary because, again, uh, it really represents insulin resistance, which relates to all the chronic diseases. So I would say it is a lifelong treatment for the patient, uh, our general approach is to try to get patients to, uh, as much as we can, get down close to zero carbs, try to lose weight um, and get down closer to their ideal body weight. And at that point, we would start to let them experiment some with um, carbohydrates of various types and just sort of see how it goes. Uh, some patients will be able to tolerate 40 or 50 grams of carbohydrates a day. Some patients could tolerate you know, 30 or 40, and some patients in the more severe category are going to have to stay under 20 grams or they're they're not going to be successful long term. And when you say some tolerate, how do you measure that on insulin response or weight gain? Really weight gain. Uh, uh, it's hard to measure insulin, I mean, it's not hard, but, uh, you know, it would be very cumbersome to measure that. There's, uh, we, we do, uh, sometimes we have people eat a meal and try whatever they're going to try and check their one-hour blood sugar. And if it's significantly over 100, then we would tell them that's probably not a great meal for them. Um, and we compare that to what they're when we do a three-hour glucose tolerance test, we look at what their numbers are. So we can use that to sort of gauge how they're going to do with certain carbohydrates. But really, weight is a very easy, uh, inexpensive way to to gauge what the insulin levels are doing. And um, when you say zero carbs, we're talking about vegetables and fruits are out of the diet for a period of time then, true? Well, uh, I say zero carbs, and, and I always qualify that and say if you try to do zero, you're probably going to get 15 or 20 a day. Our our approach is to put patients on a on a relatively high fat diet, 60 to 70 percent calories coming from fat, uh, 20 to 25 percent from protein, and then um, what we would call non-starchy vegetables or are allowed and allowed at, at a reasonable level, um, and that's where the carbohydrates would sort of slip in. And how does a person eat 
60 to 70% fat. What does that look like in my breakfast, lunch, and dinner? <laughs> uh, well, what I do is say to them, uh, there's a fairly short list of fats. Uh, we promote mostly animal fat. So butter, heavy whipping cream, cheese, red meat, pork, um, olive oil, uh no sugar peanut butter, which not uh, sort of the natural peanut butter is a good source of oil, and then mayonnaise. And through the combination of those uh, foods, if they can uh, push that pretty hard and, and use lots of sauces that are uh, mayonnaise-based and things like that, uh, they can achieve that level of fat. Are you a fan of coconut oil? I think coconut oil is fine. Uh, it does have some saturated fat in it. I think it's relatively exotic in a lot of our patients. They're struggling with just changing from, you know, their typical processed bag foods to just more traditional uh, whole foods. So getting getting to coconut oil might be a little harder, but I think it's it is a it is a reasonable fat source. And what about the omega-3 fats? Is that part of the plan, too? Well, it really, if you dissect out, I mean, even, even if you take lard, which to most people is a bad word, but lard, uh, probably 50% in the fat of the fat in lard uh, would be categorized in an omega, omega-3 category. So if you're eating animal fat, you're getting plenty of omega-3s. Um, I think that's why our whole society is having to take omega-3 uh, supplements, and that's why that it works, really, is our population is fat malnourished, and when you replace that, you get positive results. And I know just because of the brainwashing that's gone on our entire lives, I'm sure people are just, really, I should eat lard and heavy whipping cream and butter? Isn't that going to give me high cholesterol? So what what do you see happens with their cholesterol and their lipid profile? Uh, the, well, you know, again, uh, it's all in the brainwashing, but cholesterol itself probably is not the right number to look at. Uh, we look primarily at HDL and triglycerides, both of which improve in most patients by 50% very quickly, maybe in two or three months, uh, might look better. Uh, the uh, cholesterol number itself might actually go up a little bit early on, but usually it's relatively stable. Uh, so we see the profiles uh, getting dramatically better. That's what's so counterintuitive to you know, what we believe, the lipid hypothesis, so do you worry about the LDL? Do you fractionate that um, to see if it's the good LDL? Or or do you just not worry about that and follow the, the parameters you talked about, the HDL and triglyceride? That's pretty much what we follow. I think there's plenty of studies out there that um, have been dietary uh, manipulation studies where patients are put on high animal fat diets and the uh, you get a reduction in the high-dense uh, LDL, which is the, the more toxic one, and then the larger, more fluffy uh, 
LDL is the one that goes up. So I don't I don't feel like I need to I guess waste money in terms of just mm-hmm. ordering a bunch of tests to prove that in individuals. Um, I mean, my personal experience um, when I started all this six or seven years ago, I put myself on the diet so I could learn about it. Um, I mean, I've never had a personal weight problem, uh, but I did lose 16 pounds fairly quickly uh, when I started the diet. Um, but I'm probably now eating 70% fat every day. My cholesterol numbers are fabulous. Um, you know, I have great energy and I've never felt better. So, um, I've, you know, I think a lot of physicians recommend things. They don't necessarily do it themselves. Mm-hmm. And do your patients experience um, similar weight drops at, at that pace that you saw? We, uh, if If we get a patient that really is um, in line with what we're recommending, they lose 10 to 12 pounds every four weeks, and it's a very steady drop. Um, and they will continue to lose that uh, until they get to pretty much ideal body weight. I mean, it's an amazing transition. The hard part is getting patients to to get there, get to the point where they're, they're really uh, uh, doing what we recommend. I yeah, I imagine it's hard to have that conversation with each patient and you know, if you could have ongoing classes or something where they check in, some accountability that, that probably helps people. Because it is changing everything you know to be, you know, healthy eating and turning it on its head. But you're getting the results. You're having amazing results um with infertility and the weight is coming off and their blood pressure probably decreases and they're probably seeing, you know, all the fringe benefits of the diet. Um, everything probably start, starts to come into line when you eat that way. It, it absolutely does. Um, I mean, we see that over and over. Um, one thing that's interesting that I uh, recently read, there was a pediatric study that looked at um, kids that they put on less than 10% carbohydrate diet to help them lose weight. And they found that it takes about 18 months for the the patient or person to get from where they were eating regular diet food, uh, their regular diet, high carb, to a low carb place to the point where psychologically they're not bothered by it anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And I probably experienced that myself. It took me about 18 months. So it really takes a long time. I think people, you know, they want the quick fix. They want to just have it happen overnight. And it's an ongoing process. People start, then they get get off the plan, then they get back on it, and then they get off. And and you, you sort of go back and forth for a while, but if you stick with it and you can go uh, 12 to 24 months with it, I think, you know, that's where the total transformation comes in to where you just you never want to go back and eat carbohydrates again. Amen. That's kind of my story and the story of people who have walked that road. Um, you know, you can't imagine living without toast and bagels and pasta and cereal or, you know, baked goods until you've 
done it, and it's like it's not a sacrifice. I don't care about them anymore, even though it was 99% of my diet. But you need to remove it 100% for a while before the cravings break, and and that's the thing, you know. But honestly, I think that people um, that come to my classes, and you see this too, I'm sure, that because their desire to have a baby is so strong or their desire to get well and get rid of, you know, their their facial hair and their extra weight, that that motivates them through, you know, the hard time while they're breaking their cravings. And, you know, I think they might look back later and say, I'm, I'm glad, you know, that, that uh, you know, I had my problem because that's what got me into the doctor's office to find out this, you know, life-saving information, really, this goes beyond just infertility but reversing diabetes and all kinds of um you know issues that go along with that and heart disease. Right. No, it's it's huge. Um and uh it really is life saving for patients and I I would tell you the other trend that we're seeing um now is you know, when I was in medical school in the uh, mid eighties, it was rare to see people with strokes and heart attacks in their 30s and 40s, but, uh, I mean, we're seeing that all the time now uh, with patients. And so uh, the trend is, is is a very frightening trend. It is a frightening trend, and I'm glad that you're on this side of the equation, and I hope that you have lots of influence with your medical community cronies. And uh, because I feel like, this message of eating real food to reverse chronic illness is a grassroots movement and it's going to be a long time where we hear, you know, it coming from um the authorities. So we just need to keep doing our thing. And Dr. Fox, I so appreciate you coming on the show today to um share your wisdom and expertise and I know that you've helped uh, many, many people today. So Thank you very much. No problem. Thank you for having me. Okay. I wish you all a good day and good health and keep on eating real food, which is lots of fat and protein, and you're going to be okay. (laughs) Thank you very much. All right. You too, Erin.